Hello, and welcome to The Downlink, Episode 8, brought to you by the University of Georgia's Small Satellite Research Laboratory. I'm Graham Grable, a mechanical engineer here at the lab. I'm Hollis Neal, a mathematician here at the lab. I'm Paige Copenhaver, I'm a physics and astronomy major here. I'm Colin Null, the chief engineer here. I'm Megan LaCour, I'm a mechanical team lead. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about what we've been doing in the lab this past week. We're going to be talking about the new CubeSat missions on the SLS, and we have a special segment from Narav, live from iCubeSat from earlier this week. So this week in the lab, we had a, a dilemma come up. So we're sitting here waiting for the SpaceX launch, okay? And we ordered pizza, and we got pizza. So we had this serious problem arise. So everybody had eaten an equal amount of pizza, but... There was one piece remaining. Kwa, would you like to outline what, what happened? So uh, there were three contenders for the pizza. It was me, Hollis, and Graham. Mm-hmm. So I decided um, there has to be a fair competition. Uh, you know, we're good at different things. So uh, I decided random number generator would be the way to go. So, Not just uh, a random number generator. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more than that. We don't want to just randomly generate something and then decide what's we, the fun with that you know yeah, there's no drama we love the rush so uh we went to matlab and uh wrote a quick program uh is is a random number generator but not only generating but it's also uh adding um accumulatively over time so we have uh, 20 round each of 20 seconds and it will generate a random number every round and uh it would just add up over time mm-hmm. and hollis won yes very unfair. I won quite often, actually. Remember, I won all the tests as well. Yeah, I think there's something wrong with the... Yeah, with no, the you know, um, any sort of time that you're playing with numbers, you know, I'm a math major. I, I have the, you know, the the smiling down from the, the mathematician, you know, whatever controls random numbers. Just yep. kidding. It's a pseudo random number generator. So thank you, whoever programmed that random jum- number generator, because that allowed me to win. The angel of arithmetic. Oh, yeah. I'm not an arithmetic major qua. Get out of here. <laughs> I think also uh, we're doing a drone calibration test later mm-hmm. today. Uh, yes, we are. Um, we are calibrating the uh, hexacopter that will be testing uh, the payload for um, the uh, Air Force Research Labs CubeSat. And uh, we have done static calibration, uh, which is temperature compensation and uh, bias. Uh, but later we're going to do dynamic calibration Uh it's, it's going to be fun because uh, it's, it's a huge hexacopter, and two of us is going to be holding it up and uh, sort of dance with it. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, excited to dance with Qua in <laughs> calibrating the hexacopter. Yeah, and uh, we just kind of teach it how to you know fly and let it see its environment. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good feeling. It's kind of like introducing a kid into the world. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited because it's been on our, our lab table for a while, and I've got to see it do some pretty pretty neat stuff. Like there's a cool gimbal system for for um, stabilizing cameras and such on it. And so it'll be really neat actually seeing it fly and see what comes out of it. Yeah, we're all very excited. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I guess we should uh, talk a bit about a little bit about the CubeSat news from this past week. I guess the two big pieces of space news anyways is SpaceX hasn't launched their the Falcon 9 as of when we are recording this. So... We would have liked to have a, some reactions from yesterday um, when they should have launched, but we don't have any of those. Um, mm-hmm. and also, Beam, which is the first inflatable module on the International Space Station, 
um, was inflating on Thursday, but uh, they had to stop inflating it so because they were getting some high-pressure readings. So they're analyzing the data and figuring out what is going on with that. Yeah, so so one question that I have actually for the inflatable um, module is what happens if it does rupture? It'd be like a mini explosion on the side exactly. of the International Space Station. If it ruptured, it would practically cause the International Space Station to, I don't want to say implode, but it would do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Yes, but um, that's that's actually the similar thing to all that space junk that's in low Earth orbit. I think it's it's on the, the magnitude of around three centimeters could totally destroy a module. So um, space junk is a serious threat to to safety up there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in terms of CubeSats, though, Bill Nye, our favorite uh, science guy, visited the Cal Poly CubeSat lab, and there they were doing a day-in-the-life test of the LightSail 2. So there they were testing um, a startup procedure, um, testing the solar panel deployment, and they were also testing the deployment of the light sail itself. I saw some of the pictures from the Cal Poly Twitter, and I thought those were actually pretty neat. So light sail 2 is going to be launched with Prox-1, and at Prox-1 is another CubeSat with Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. Yay, Georgia Tech! Yeah! So Prox-1 is going to be a CubeSat that's designed to inspect other satellites. And what Prox-1 will be doing with LightSail is it's actually going to monitor the deployment of the LightSail itself. Now, the most interesting part I find of this is that both CubeSats are planned and scheduled to be launched from the Falcon Heavy later this year. Exactly. And I don't think we have a firm date on when the Falcon Heavy is going to be launching this year, but it's interesting to see that maybe these CubeSats will be the some of the first payloads from the Falcon Heavy. So so this the, the Falcon Heavy is what Elon Musk wants to to use to take payloads to Mars, right? Yeah, that's right. I think that and also the BFR, which is sort of an unconfirmed rumored big, big rocket that SpaceX is supposed to be producing. I have not heard of this. Yes, it's a, a very large. It's supposed to be very reusable, but... And there's not a lot of details until, I think, September is when they said that they would release a lot of the Mars plans for SpaceX. That's really exciting. I can't wait to, to see that mission go up it, so soon as well. I know, exactly. I think they're going to be sending the Red Dragon to Mars in 2018, which is sort of just a Mars variant of the Dragon version 2. So that will be very cool. And I think uh, the Dragon V2 is actually uh, designed to land on any celestial body in the solar system. Wow. Yeah. So, so yes, um, I saw those tests. I mean, I thought I thought that it was an abort system that they were testing. but uh, It's an abort system if needed, but typically you wouldn't use it if your, if your launch goes well. So you still have all the fuel on board, so they use those to actually be landers similar to how the Falcon 9 lands. That's really cool. And if you haven't seen those, um, those hover tests for the... The Dragon module, they are really neat to watch. Yeah, they are. In other CubeSat news, three new CubeSats have been added to the flight manifest for the SLS EM-1 mission. So there's a couple from the Japanese space agency, JAXA, and there's another one from the Europeans with, in conjunction with Italy to the European Space Agency and the Italian Space Agency. So the Japanese ones have some very confusing and long acronyms. They really love those. So the first CubeSat is called 
Equilus, which stands for Equilibrium Lunar Earth Point 6U Spacecraft. Now, I don't think wow. I would have been able to figure out a acronym like that. But That's incredible. I know. But anyways, this CubeSat's going to be looking at plasma around Earth's atmosphere and studying how, um, how that affects Earth's atmosphere, the weather patterns, what is going on with the plasma. As part of the mission, the Equilus CubeSat's going to be taking a look at how it can demonstrate low-energy trajectory maneuvers by having passes next to the moon, so similar to like how Apollo had trajectories that went around the moon and brought them back to Earth, um, they're sort of demonstrating how satellites can have can do the same idea and change their orbits and change their trajectories through that mechanism. So, so it actually has a propulsion system. Um, I it. think it has a propulsion system, but the reasoning behind of using the moon is so you can minimize the propulsion mm-hmm. system. Oh, okay. Exactly. So so you're using the moon's gravity to your trajectory's advantage. Exactly. So the second CubeSat that JAXA is sending up with the SLS is called OMOTENASHI, and that stands for Outstanding Moon Exploration Technologies Demonstrated by Nano Semi-Hard Impactor. So, uh, so, so before you actually tell me what it does, from, from the very last part of the that statement it sounds like they're planning on crashing a cube satellite into the moon yes not only crashing a cube satellite into the moon but having it survive whoa so we don't know too much about what the actual mission is going to be but they did release a graphic of what the mission purpose is and what it looks like is is that they're going to be using two large inflatable wheels that's going to cushion the landing for the CubeSat, and the, the CubeSat will use these wheels to travel across the lunar surface, similar to how Spirit and Opportunity landed on Mars, kind of using that same concept. What are they studying once they get to the moon? Um, I don't think they're studying too much. Again, we don't know too much about the mission itself, but it's sort of demonstrating that we could land CubeSat onto a surface using this mechanism. Wow, that's actually really neat because CubeSats are relatively cheap compared to the, the larger satellites. Um, and if you can land a, a cube satellite on a foreign surface, who knows what you could do with, um, you know, a number of cube satellites to, to land on a, a lot of different areas. It would, it would reduce the cost for, um, the study of foreign bodies. I'd imagine for a, a small spacecraft like that to, to be able to explore like the, the surface of Mars, it would have to be in like a relatively flat area. Otherwise, it would just get stuck. Yeah, I feel like that that would have to be the case as well. Uh, the wheels that were on the graphic don't look like they have too much traction. So I think, yeah, you're, you're right in that. It would have to be relatively flat. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how they'll tackle that problem. Definitely. I love seeing one result of all the science with small satellites is... How do you do such an incredible task with such a small amount of space? And so far, people have done people have made really ingenious discoveries on how to do incredible things with cube satellites. The Japanese are um, also planning on a very special mission for a 2020 Olympics event. Uh, they are planning on creating a man-made meteor shower uh, using microsatellites, and uh, I think this is just it's crazy because. Wow. Um, yeah, planning to launch something now that will uh, degrade over time and um, creating the meteor shower exactly on the day of the event is something that's just 
you know, unfathomable. That would um, be neat. Yeah, very talk neat. Talk about talk about like a spectacular event for the Olympics, like a spectac- spectacular opening ceremony. Yeah, How about raining down cube satellites on the Earth. What's what's <laughs> more so awesome than that? They're Not able fireworks. to predict exactly when it's going to decay enough to spur this meteor shower. So I'm thinking, um, uh, because of like solar weather and um, irregularity in um, the upper atmosphere, I think they might do it like a, a adjustment system, propulsion system mm-hmm. that will kind of react over time and make sure it lands on a day. And um, they're illuminating the uh, meteorites, like creating the uh, meteor using um, tiny little sphere, thousands of little sphere that will burn up and glow in the re-entry. That's so neat. So so they're, they're intentional, like, the, they're little spheres that, that glow when they get really high, and so it'll just be a bunch of them just... Oh, I cannot wait to yeah, see it, that. It's not just the microsatellite burning, it's a, it's a sphere, so... I think it'll be a very good show. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. That's yeah, very that'll cool. That'll be a pretty sight. That's a really creative idea. One thing that would be crazy, though, if they told nobody. I mean, obviously, you can't do that with going to space, but it would be really cool if it's like we all of a sudden just see like a meteor shower. I would probably probably be really freaked out that the Earth, like, you know, is coming to an end. But um, I'm glad that they gave us a heads up. <laughs> because <laughs> only unfortunate thing about this is that if the ceremony, is, if it's cloudy, <laughs> that would be highly unfortunate. Oh, no. Which no I've probably just jinxed it, so I'm knocking on wood now. So, there you go. Graham, why would you? <laughs> How could you? Anyways, the third CubeSat that's going to be launching with the SLS is coming from the ESA and Italy. And this CubeSat is called Argo Moon. So, what this CubeSat is going to be doing is it's going to be taking a look at the interim cryogenic propulsion stage of the SLS. Which, as I'm probably guessing most of you don't know, it's the stage that is right behind or underneath the Orion capsule. So what this CubeSat is going to be doing is it's going to be studying what it's doing. And it's also going to be able to observe CubeSats being deployed from the SLS. So the ones that are going to be orbiting the moon or hit it off into our solar system, uh, that CubeSat is going to be able to look at those. As a as part of the mission as well, it's going to be demonstrating optical communication between Earth and a CubeSat. So that's basically using lasers instead of regular radio communication to communicate with Earth and uh, for Earth to communicate with the with the CubeSat itself. If you think about fiber optics and like Google Fiber, we have really really high data transfer speeds, and so if we can translate that into something we can use with satellites. Uh, that could change the, how we use data and how and how we transmit data back and forth with satellites. Because one thing that, that I've noticed that's a trend in communications with satellites is they keep on raising the frequency of light that or of the photon and the electromagnetic spectrum. It's bad for me to call it light because light is only a certain um, frequency range. Um, it's really neat to to hear about like you know going from UHF VHF to S band to expand to and then up and up because um as you go up you get better um transmission rates imagine the pointing accuracy the the cubesat has to be able to perform because it has to aim that laser down on earth and hit a spot and hit a <laughs> spot yeah oh wow that's intense that's incredible especially at those great distances that's going to that's going to be very critical how much would the atmosphere atmospheric uh turbulence or you know how would that affect it um i don't know i would imagine it would affect it a lot 
because you're basically going through a fluid. Mm-hmm. So one of our team members, Narov, was at iCubeSat this, this past week, and there they discussed more about CubeSats and SLS and how that relationship is slowly growing. And so we talked and sat down with Narov earlier this week, and we recorded what his experience was and what he learned at iCubeSat. And so this is what we learned. Now we have one of our team members, Narav Ilango, and he is at Oxford, England right now at the iCubesat conference. So we're going to talk to him about his experiences. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. Great to have you on the show, Narav. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience at the conference? Yeah. Um, so the conference was at, on the 24th and 25th of May. So it was actually um, yesterday. I got done with it um, at Oxford University in the Sheldonian Theater, which is a really old historic building um, in the heart of campus, and it was a really cool venue. There was maybe a hundred participants there. Um, I think thirty presenters of, you know, the presentations, I guess, and um, five posters. So it was a relatively small conference, but I thought it was nice because it meant that you could um, get to know people and you could um, really focus on each topic as opposed to being overwhelmed by um, a litany of different ideas, which I think happens sometimes at conferences. That's good. Sounds like you had lots of fun at the conference. I think. Yeah, Paige, it was neat. <laughs> I think Paige has a question for you about this conference. Yeah, so I heard that you met a guy who makes a bunch of femto satellites, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what his projects are. Yeah, so um, obviously I'm not an expert on his projects, but um, it's a guy over at Arizona State um, who's working on creating a standard um, and improving uh, femtosats in general. Which, if you don't know what femtosats are, they're essentially one ninth of a one U, so they're about a ninth of a standard uh, CubeSat size. So they're really, really small. And the idea is that CubeSats, although they have made satellites a lot smaller and cheaper, aren't small enough that you can go farther using, um, you know, th- basic things like chip technology, basic radio receivers, and essentially create a satellite out of homemade parts. Um, his estimate for a one F, which is essentially one ninth of a CubeSat, is only three hundred dollars, um, excluding launch costs, of course. So I thought that was that was pretty cool, and I think that you know as technology expands and um, you know gets better, he can definitely. It seems like he's going to be able to do a lot with it, even perform real scientific missions. Yeah, that's very interesting. With uh, especially how cheap he's able to get these femto satellites, because. If you can really get some actual scientific data with these, um, that could really open up uh, an even bigger door into this small satellite world. Yeah, um, he's basically trying to create two standard sizes, a 1F, which um, 9 can fit into a 1U or 27 can fit into a 3U. Basically, they're they're really, really small, but I think that um, they could have a lot of potential. And, you know, especially if you can overcome the launch cost factor, which is a huge, huge portion. I think that you can do a lot with those, especially because um, he's able. he said he was even able to get S-band on it, which is pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned that the, um, some of the uh, presenters there talked about biological, ap- like applications of like biological experiments using at, at the conference. Do you remember yeah. what some of those were? Um, so the one that I remember was BAMSAT, which was um, a guy from Cranfield University talking about it. And essentially, it was a third or fourth generation biological satellite um, being made 
a collaboration between Cranfield, some other university, and the ESA. Or it might not have been in the ESA. It might have been the UK Technology um, Center. But anyways, it was a pretty cool um, idea because what they were doing was creating very controlled uh, environments within the satellite in order to um, test the exposure of cell cultures. And basically, they had done, um, I think, E. coli and um, Staphylococcus. But now they're actually looking to put mammalian cell cultures into the next ones. So that way you can really have the test apply to humans, right? You can see how human cells are affected by um, various radiation factors or temperature factors. And, you know, I think it's interesting. um, But at the same time, uh, one of the my biggest uh, regrets about the conference, I guess, is that a lot of the stuff... Um, wasn't directly applicable to what we're doing. It's interesting to find out what what's going on in the field, but it's not really um, going to help us with our CubeSat project, I think, other than maybe, um, you know, providing some ideas of what we can do in the future. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of innovations and new technologies and new ideas kind of coming out with the Fento satellites and the new kind of mission ideas you can use with CubeSats. Uh, what was, yeah. was there something that really stood out to you at this conference that wowed you well something that is not directly related to cubesats um but was really really cool to hear about is the sls system being developed at the marshall space center in huntsville alabama um so a guy from the sls project came to talk about how um they have they found out that they have extra room on the sls the sls if you don't know is a a massive rocket that's going to be launching i think the orion spacecraft um and is generally just going to be huge so it can launch um, a lot of weight into the atmosphere, way more than any anything that's ever happened before. And the cool part was when they designed the rocket, they didn't realize that they were going to have extra space. Um, so because of that, they're now redesigning that portion of the rocket so that it could fit CubeSats. And they already um, took some off um, some proposals from different universities. And I think their first round, they're already filled up. But there's a second, third, and fourth version of the SLS system that's coming out um, within the next 10 years. And they're going to have mission calls coming out for satellites to be a part of that, um, to perform uh, you know, some sort, sorts of support for the SLS system or spacecraft being supported by the SLS and for any of its own missions. Like I know, um, I think there are 14 um, coming up on the first version of it. And um, some of them are related to the actual flight of Orion, but then some of them are just like their own mission. So it's pretty cool, not just because of the CubeSat aspect, just because SLS could potentially revolutionize the way we um, go to space and you could could pe- put people back on the moon, um, which obviously hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah, that's amazing. So, like, the SLS could help university CubeSats and bring them into outer space and to the outer reaches of the solar system, it sounds like. Yeah, the big thing that I found from this conference was that, um, you know, I think people in the CubeSat community are already looking ahead beyond Earth. The first thing was you know, doing earth support, earth imaging type things that, that we're going to do, although, you know, we're doing a little something different. But now I think that the CubeSat community is really shifting towards, um, A, like I said, performing support for other missions and um, B, going out to other planets. Um, the ESA was talking about um, putting some CubeSats out to go with their mission, which is that's a collaboration with NASA to um, basically crash a drone into an asteroid and then analyze the dust that comes off of that to test asteroid mitigation techniques. So I think that CubeSats increasingly are going to be, you know, looked for not just on the Earth, but also, um, you know, to potentially get a CubeSat out on Venus, Mars, um, the asteroid belt. And, you know, that's a that's a big change. And 
you know, I think it's something that we need to be cognizant of as we go forward because, you know, um, although this project is still in its early stages, we, we definitely have to be forward thinking and keep looking for new ideas and new opportunities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, the quick update from iCube Satnarov. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Thank you. Again, thank you, Norov, for reporting uh, back to us about iCubesat from Oxford, England. When we recorded that, it's it was getting late in Oxford, and it was sort of in the afternoon here. So thank you, Norov. It's uh, always good to, to have a reporter. And, a re- and for, I don't know if they introduced Norov, but um, Norov is our, our data team or research team lead here at the lab. Yep, that is correct. I think that's all we have for you guys this week. Uh, Be sure to uh, tune in next week for episode 9 of The Downlink. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Downlink, brought to you by the University of Georgia Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UGA Small Sat Lab. Until next time, over and out.